Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 61, in which Dr. Ali Aminian, lead author of the Splendor Study, discusses the effects of bariatric surgery on major cardiovascular events and liver outcomes. I start this conversation by noting that while the hazard ratios change between the two sets of events, the reduction in cardiovascular and liver events is virtually identical. 7.3% for liver, 7.2% for cardiovascular. I then ask Ali if any patients experienced both, which some did. This drew us back to Stephen Harrison's question about incorporating these patients into clinical trials and perhaps kidney patients as well. From there, Ali shares some powerful preliminary data about differences between the surgical and non-surgical groups, after which Stephen again speculates on how renal results should be woven into these kinds of studies. And finally, Ali asks whether cirrhosis can truly be regressed, and that leads into the dialogue that ends this conversation. This paper is important in many ways and provides powerful dramatic data about the effect of weight loss on cardiovascular and liver outcomes. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, Join the conversation in our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Go ahead, Roger. So, Stephen, I've been listening to you analyze data for two years, despite my hubris as a statistician. You've actually taught me a bunch of things, one of which I'm about to share. So if I look at the data a little differently, not in terms of percentage risk reduction, but in terms of actual risk reduction uh, per 100 patients, you get a virtually identical number for Mason and Mallow. One is 7.3%, one is 7.2%. The, the difference is that there's a higher floor for Mace than there is for Mallow. So that leads me to wonder, A, it leads me to think about Stephen's comment about putting them both in the same study might be a really helpful thing to do. Ali, were there patients who experienced both? And if so, how many? I don't know exactly how many, but there were some patients who experienced both. Yes. Stephen, I would think that would be a really good reason to put them both in the same study, right? Because then, you, or, and maybe all three with kidney, because then you could figure out who has one affected, two affected, three affected. And if you go back to the hypothesis that earlier stage NASH F1, F2 is likely to be a metabolic element of that entire non-communicable metabolic disease cohort, and the F3s are more likely to be about liver disease about Malo, then it would really be interesting to see how all those things align and coordinate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there probably is a situation where earlier stage disease will present more with cardiovascular outcomes. Late stage disease prevents, presents more with liver-related outcomes. And then a Venn diagram, if you will, an overlapping portion of probably F2s and 3s where you have a mixed bag. That probably includes the F2s that are rapid fibrosis progressors that are like diabetic and maybe have genetic polymorphism risk factors that drive disease as well. Ali, maybe this is beyond the scope of the paper, but just kind of thinking about your data set, two things come to mind. Do you have data to retrospectively look at paired liver biopsies in any of this cohort? And do you have any data on F4 population? That's kind of a two-part question. And then another question would be, and if I don't ask it now, I'll forget it. So I'm going to ask it and hopefully Roger or Wayne, or you can remember it. And that is, did you collect any specific NITs or non-invasive tests that we talk about today and use in our vernacular? Things like even ALT, fibrous scans to any degree, any MRI data. I know you didn't probably collect Pro-C3 and L. If it wasn't around, you probably didn't have stored serum. I'm not sure. But just some basic things like Fib4, uh, NAFLD fibrosis score. So that's maybe three questions uh, kind of rolled up into one 
long sentence? Yeah, very good, very good questions. So in terms of the pair liver biopsies, we had those data, but we decided not to show that in this particular paper, to keep that for another paper, because we didn't want people just to focus on the biopsy. We wanted people to focus on the clinical endpoints. But when you have the biopsy data in paper, everybody just look at the biopsy. And <laughs> They forget the, the clinical endpoint. So we intentionally... Can you give us a sneak peek? Yeah, sure. So that paper, I hope, going to come out soon, but I can share with you. So in terms of Nash resolution, for example, Nash resolution, I have the bar graph in front of me. So Nash resolution occurred in 22% in the non-surgical group versus 68% in the surgical group. Fibrosis improvement, right? at least one stage, 21% in the non-surgical group versus 64% in the surgical group. Having both criteria of NASH resolution plus fibrosis improvement, 12% in the non-surgical group met that criteria versus 50% in the surgical group. Fibrosis progression by one stage or greater, 25% in the non-surgical group progressed in the second liver biopsy or repeat liver biopsy versus 5% in the surgical group. Yeah, those are those are remarkable data sets. Thank you for giving us a, a sneak peek. And really, the only way to get that is by listening to this podcast, I assume. So that's good news for anybody listening until the paper comes out. But that, that data, I don't know if you're aware, at least in the non-surgical group that I would consider the placebo cohort in drug development, that mirrors exactly what we saw in the Sinecriverock trial. Um, early on where we enrolled people, we followed them for two years and did three liver biopsies, one at baseline, one at one year, and one at two years. And in the placebo cohort, that's exactly what we saw, about a 20-something percent progression of fibrosis over time and about 20 percent regressed fibrosis over time. And that gets to this idea when you're dealing with fatty liver patients, a large pool of fatty liver patients at any one given time, they're people that are advancing with their disease, they're people that are very stable, and they're people that are actually in that time of their life where for some reason they're getting a little bit better. And it tends to be about, you know, about 20%, 40, you know, 20%, uh, 60%, and 20%. That's kind of the 20% better, 20% worse, 40%, 60% staying about the same. So you just essentially mirrored the placebo cohort of drug trials where we've been able to calculate that over, over a two-year period. The prevention of fibrosis progression in the bariatric cohort is incredibly novel data. We often in drug development forget about stability of disease. We either focus on improvement of disease or worsening of disease, but there's something to be said for keeping a patient stable. Even in my cirrhotic cohort of patients, I had them in clinic this past week where many of them, for some reason or other, I had a whole bunch of cirrhotics that came into clinic. Many of them were well compensated child days that feel perfectly fine. And their comment to me is, doc, I feel like I'm a walking, ticking time bomb. When am I going to decompensate? Is it tomorrow? Can I go on a vacation? You know, what's my risk? Can I have any salt at all? Can I occasionally have an alcoholic beverage? And this ability to arrest disease is something that we forget about. And, and it's good to see that bit of data from you relative to this population. So thank you for sharing that. The other one I had on that was any NITs that you collected along the way. So your, your second question was about the F4 patients. Yes. So again, the problem is that the number of patients 
patient with F4 who undergo bariatric surgery is usually very small. They should. Do you know what I say about you're, you're a surgeon? I'm not. I'm just a lowly hepatologist. But my comment to this is if surgeons do a peek and treat, back in the day, you would cut the belly open. You would say, oh, my goodness, this is cirrhotic liver. I can't do anything. And you sew the patient back up. Um, we call that a peak and shriek down here in Texas. But We are more aggressive than, I guess, surgeons in Texas. But again, the number of patients were very small. But we, we look at those data. So I hope, I hope we're going to have sufficient number of patients. So we are actively working on that project now. To have a sufficient number of patients with F4 who had surgery, I would assume we probably in our database, we have around 100 patients. And then we can have enough control patients and then look at their outcome. The good point is that we're going to include patients who had compensated cirrhosis and then we're going to look at the decompensation as, as an endpoint. The good point is that the event rate is much higher in those patients and although the sample size is smaller with the good follow-up time, I hope we're going to see losing weight can decrease the risk of a rate of progression to decompensated cirrhosis in patients with F4. And we may be able to ask some of those F4 patients who had bariatric surgery, ask them to come back for repeat liver biopsy to see if surgery could lead to regression of cirrhosis. That's the other possibility that may happen. So my question, Stephen, for you, regression of cirrhosis, do you think that that can be a possibility? So it, it, it happens with viral hepatitis, right? With HCV hepatitis or... Yeah. But how about the NASH cirrhosis? Is there any data that some medication or intervention can regress the cirrhosis, NASH cirrhosis? Yeah, Ali, that's, that's the $100,000 question. So, Wayne, you probably have a comment on this because I think you may have been in that particular boat. But what we know for sure is hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and autoimmune hepatitis, even to some degree alcoholic hepatitis, can regress. Alcoholic-based cirrhosis can regress. Uh, we've seen that clearly in a lot of these five, seven-year follow-up hepatitis B and hepatitis C trials. My 25-year career of being a hepatologist and treating fatty liver here in Texas, which is what I consider the epicenter of fatty liver for the planet, has been a bit more challenging. Patients that I have seen lose a tremendous amount of weight and I repeat liver biopsies on, I tend to see that they remain cirrhotic, but their functionality returns. So their albumins will rise back to around four. Their INRs will come down. Obviously, if they were jaundiced, that tends to go away. But their platelet counts remain very low. And I don't think I've ever seen a platelet count that's below 100,000 rise to 200 or 300,000 with any kind of intervention that we've done. Now, more recently, we have done a small cohort of well-compensated cirrhotic patients in a clinical trial using efruxifermin, which is an FGF21 agonist. We treated them for 16 weeks, did a biopsy before and a biopsy at 16 weeks, or actually it's more around 20 weeks or so we did the biopsy. And in that particular cohort, we showed regression of cirrhosis in a third of the patients. So about 33% were no longer considered F4. And to go along with that, all of the NITs we measured significantly 
significantly were associated with with a dose response improvement that you could say kind of would validate what we saw histopathologically. Having said that, it's a small study, short treatment duration, and so sampling variability and heterogeneity of the sample all come into play, and and you can poke holes in that data set all day long and argue one way or the other. I'm biased. Since I did the trial, I'm in favor that we actually did see a histopathologic benefit, although it has not been put through AI digital pathology. I don't have path AI or histo index or other AI data to corroborate that finding. I do think it is possible to move a well-compensated child's acerotic off of an F4 platform and show regression of disease. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Starting next Wednesday, December 22nd, we will kick off our year-end series, which will include three full episodes and nine or ten longer-form conversations with some of the leaders who've joined our episodes throughout the year. We've recorded three of these conversations as of today, December 16th, and all are fascinating and insightful. If you have downtime during the holiday, make sure to check it out. And if we don't see you later in the year, and this is the last you hear from me in 2021, have a wonderful holiday season, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast in January. Bye-bye now.